Are you struggling to keep sin and temptation in submission? Does it frustrate you to have thoughts and desires that you know, have heard, or have learned flow from our sinful or corrupted human nature? Well, in this video and episode, we're going to learn and discuss what God says is his antidote or remedy to our sinful human nature and the passions that it produces. If this is the first time we're meeting, my name is Chris, and this is Foundation Bible Studies, where I seek to help connect you with your creator in Jesus Christ, both informationally and experientially, so you can find the significance and purpose that you were created for. Now, this is the second video in a series just covering sin, how God helps us, what he says about sin, how he helps us, the help that he gives, how to put into practice. I will link that video down below if you're on the podcast version or here on YouTube and any other lessons or videos that are referenced, I will link them down below as well. So as we get into the content throughout the years, including myself, and you can check out the previous video in this series where I kind of just briefly went over my history. I did not grow up in church, but like I said, you can check that out or check out my channel trailer on YouTube and it gives you kind of a pictorial history, a picture history of where the Lord Jesus has brought me from and how he brought me to wherever I am right now in him in relation to my pastor, my church and things of that nature. And so over the years, I have heard the accusation that how can God hold us accountable for sin if he created us this way, according to our own understanding and not getting God's perspective on it. And so you can check out that first video in this series if you want a better understanding of how we got in this mess, as well as you can check out my Bible study series, the Search for Truth Bible study series. It's based on a curriculum, the Search for Truth 2 curriculum, which you can purchase from Pentecostal Publishing House. I will link that in the description as well. So God's plan of deliverance from the power of sin. What is God's plan? How, how does God help us with these struggles, these vices, these crazy desires? What does he do? How does he help us? So the just in plain form, it is by his Holy Spirit or by his spirit. The phrase or term Holy Spirit it's a descriptive phrase that differentiates him or makes a difference, makes a distinction between him and unclean spirits, the spirits that have rebelled against him, the angels that have rebelled against him. And I have a video on that talking about the fall of Lucifer, the rise of Satan that will link, be linked in the description as well. But God's spirit, his Holy Spirit, his spirit is the antidote. It is the remedy for the nature or our condition of sin, of error, the nature within us and condition that causes us to have desires and, and perspectives that stand in opposition to God and that actively seeks to rebel against God. Now, as we get into this, one of the places I wanted to go that was on my heart and mind as I was praying, putting this together, is understanding what God says about his word and and what he says about leaders that just kind of do their own thing. They don't seek after God. And what is the outcome? And not just leaders, but just us everyday people. What is the outcome for those of us who, who don't accept God's help, who 
rejected. And so one of the places in is in the writings of God's prophet Isaiah in chapter 28, starting at verse 7. And it says, and this is referring to the leaders of the nation of Israel. This was God's covenant people. They were in a covenant just as much as in a marriage covenant and even more, even more so, I would say. And God had used them as a case study, so to say, in more scientific terms, as a case study to show how mankind as a whole, how even when you have God close to you, because of the nature and condition of sin within our bodies, that within our own power, we cannot stay close to God like he wants us to stay close to him. So it says this, it says, but they also have erred through wine. They've gone astray through wine. They've been corrupted. They've gotten to error through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. So Whenever you see that phrase, the way you hear about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, this is talking about a pathway or a trail that you're walking down in order to get to a destination. And so here he's saying because of them becoming drunk, these, and we're going to find out who these are, these leaders are, they are out of the way. They are, they're stumbling off the pathway. They're they're getting into things that they shouldn't be instead of staying focused, staying sober, both physically and spiritually, naturally and supernaturally. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are just totally taken over. They, they give themselves to these things. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. So they they don't even have a clear plan. They don't even they they can't even see God's plan clearly. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They don't provide justice for the people. God gave his commandments, his 10 commandments and all the other laws that were built upon those 10 commandments. They they don't even give clear justice. That's why God gave the 613 commandments under the old covenant so they knew how to make clear judgments based on the judgments that God himself would give in various situations. They err in vision, they stumble in judgment, for all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? God is asking, who can I who can I teach knowledge? Who can I help understand my perspective? Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make understand the message? those just weaned from milk. So he's saying, well, so he's referencing the leaders and God is saying, well, they're just all out of sorts. They're, they're totally off the path I want them on. And this is how through their drunkenness, through their loose lifestyle, they're not living a dedicated, disciplined, not necessarily strict, overly strict, but they are living a disciplined life, perhaps strictness in regards to their own personal devotion to God. And then he's contrasting it. He's saying, who will I teach knowledge and who will I make understand the message? Those just weaned from milk. So he's saying, do I have to go to the babies? Those just drawn from the breasts, the toddlers for precepts or principle or law for precept must be upon precept. So when it comes to God's law, everything has to line up. One law or one principle has to line up with another one. They all have to match. You think of like Legos or something. Or precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. So God's saying it all has to line up. 
whenever you see different topics, if you're familiar with biblical topics such as righteousness, holiness, purity, you, you get these topical passages all together, these areas, and you get a bigger picture of what God is saying. Line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. God puts different, he talks about these different topics and he puts portions and pieces in different places through different prophets, through different messengers, through different leaders. Here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue or another language, that, that phrase tongue or that word tongue in biblical lingo is reference to the language a person speaks. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. So with stammering lips and another language, a different language from what the Israeli, the Israelite, the Jewish people from their mother tongue, their mother language, or with stammering lips and another language, will he speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. So God is saying, I'm going to use people that speak a totally different language and I'm going to be preaching to the Israelites. I'm going to be preaching to the Jews and saying, this is what God has been trying to do. So you may cause the weary to rest. Does sin make you weary? Does the struggle make you weary? Does it wear you down? Does it frustrate you? Well, God says with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to people. He will speak to his people at this point, whether Jew or Gentile Christian. Now you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept. So God is saying, I send my word and I tried to lay it out to where it was understandable. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So if God's people would pay attention, Jew, Gentile, those of us who are born again of water and spirit, if we would pay attention, God's word would make sense. If we sought God in prayer, if our leaders would seek God in prayer, it would make sense. And I know there are some, I kind of say that assumingly, but he says it's here a little, there a little. That, And here's the problem if you don't, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. So God is telling us, he's, he's telling us through the nation of Israel all the way down to 2024 or whenever you're watching this video, he's saying, I, I'm trying, I was trying to get those who are appointed leaders, but they are just doing their own thing. They're, they're intoxicated and it could be wine. It could be just other pleasures. Just they're off the path I want them on. And so he's like, well, I tried to give understanding to those who were supposed to be mature, who are supposed to be the grownups, the adults. But I guess I'm gonna have to go to the babes. And this goes right back to something that Jesus says, where he says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things, the things he was teaching. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you have revealed them to babes, to those who were not the learned and mature, spiritually mature people. And so God will reveal those, reveal his understanding, his heart and his mind to those who are humble, to those who are genuinely humble, genuinely humble people. And, and you, you don't, we don't all start off in the same place, humility wise, or maybe we do. But in regards to maybe some of us are more humble than others when we come to God. Some of us, we just, we have a very clear view of ourselves versus others. Some people are much more naturally prideful, it seems. And so God says, I will teach those 
who are humble, those who are humble and willing to receive from my perspective. And so in talking about that and talking about God's remedy for sin is his spirit, the antidote. One of the things is that when the Lord Yahweh Jehovah, when he brings the nation of Israel out from being enslaved to the nation of Egypt, he makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. You can check out like I said, my Search for Truth Bible study series, video series, it will be linked in the description below. And he makes a covenant with them. A covenant is a sacred and solemn agreement. And it's enacted, it's instituted, it's put into place through sacrifices. And those sacrifices stand for the people, the, the people entering into that covenant. And what happens is there are animals that are sacrificed. They're usually split in half. And the, that ceremony represents what will happen to the party that breaks that covenant. It's a covenant. The closest thing we have in our day is marriage. We make these vows and we say many of us, hopefully all of us would be nice, but till death do us part in sickness and in health. When things are good and when when things are bad, when we have money and when we don't. And so that we're given these vows, a lot of us, I don't know about all of us anymore, we invoke God into our marriage vows that he will help us and hold us accountable. The witnesses there at the marriage, they're supposed to hold us accountable. They're not supposed to play favorites. They're supposed to hold us accountable. And that's the closest thing we have to this type of covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. But here in Jeremiah, we have hundreds of years that have passed since Mount Sinai, since that covenant. And that's why biblical history is so important. You get to see how things played out. You get to see how mankind got into sin, how sin entered into mankind's human nature through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and that through the rebellion of Lucifer, aka Satan. And so you have hundreds of years. God has documented hundreds and up to this point, thousands of years of mankind's continued rebellion, the nation of Israel being that case study, so to say, being that that I'm going to give you a prime example. It's been hundreds of years once we get to the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And so once we get to the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, the nation of Israel, they've been back and forth and they're just getting worse and worse and worse in their sin and their rebellion and their wickedness. And so through his prophet Jeremiah, the Lord brings up he, he tells us something. He informs us about something. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah's writings, starting in verse 31, it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The nation of Israel had been one nation. Then they eventually asked for a king. And God allowed them to have a physical king because he had been their king. He had been the one fighting their battles. He had been the one taking care of them. And then they asked for an actual human king. And, and then eventually that kingdom split into two halves, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this is what he's referencing. The house of Israel is the northern kingdom. The house of Judah is the southern kingdom. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying this new covenant is not going to be like the covenant I previously made. So I'll read that one. I'll read those two verses again. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors 
when I took them by the hand, so he's walking them out like a child, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration. So God is saying, I made a covenant with them. They promised to keep it. They, this was a covenant I made with them and their descendants all the way until I was going to enact some other things. And we see in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah that this enactment of these new things is now in hand. This God is like, I'm going to put this new plan in place. So verse 33, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God is saying, I'm going to write my laws on their hearts. I'm going to make it their desire for those who are willing. I'm going to help them to desire. That's what the heart represents, the, where our desires flow from. I'm going to write my laws. I'm going to make it part of their desire to want to keep it. Instead of writing it like those blurred out words you see back there, instead of writing it down in you and it's outside of you and it's you feel like it's rules and regulations, I'm going to put it on the inside of you and I'm going to help you to have understanding. And so once again, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. But a question is, how is God going to write it on our hearts? How is he going to write his laws on our hearts or on the law or on the hearts of the nation of Israel, which when you come to the new covenant, the new Testament scriptures, you find that God includes those of us who are not genetically, ethnically, religiously Jewish. And that was his plan all along. But how is God going to write his laws on our hearts? Well, he lets us know through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, he is one of God's prophets, somebody who stays close to the Lord through prayer, through fasting, personal, what we call personal consecration. During a time when God exiled, kicked the nation of Israel out of the land, and they were, the northern kingdom was kicked out by the Assyrian empire, and the southern kingdom of Judah was kicked out by the Babylonian empire. And so Ezekiel, he's in what is called the captivity. He's held captive by one of these nations or one of these empires. And so God is talking to him in his captivity when he's kicked outside of his homeland. And so in chapter 36 of Ezekiel's writing, starting in verse 22, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act house of Israel, but for my holy name which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness. I will honor the sacredness. I will honor the distinction of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. So God is telling the nation of Israel, you guys were just so rebellious and so wicked. I had to kick you out the land. And then by me kicking you out the land, I'm giving you historical context, cultural context, by me kicking you out the land, it makes it seem that the gods of the other nations are the more powerful gods because that's how it was seen. If one nation conquered another nation, then the gods of the conquering nation must have been more powerful than the gods of the conquered nation. And that's how the nation of Israel in part profaned God's name because the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, he is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all those beings 
all those angels that rebelled against him and positioned themselves as the gods of the nations. I got a video series coming out talking about that more in depth. So come back, like, subscribe, and check it out. And so going back to verse 23, I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, the declaration of the Lord God, when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. Continuing on. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. So this goes back to the Levitical priesthood and the things God put in place about how the nation of Israel was supposed to stay pure, how they repurify themselves when they got into what God, what God called a state of uncleanness. In verse 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So similar language to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. I will give you a new heart. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, I will write my laws on your heart. Here, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone the rebellious heart that I couldn't do anything with. You think of a stone, I mean, unless you have something that's really hard and can break it and pulverize it, that stone is just going to remain a stone. It's not, it's immovable, it's it's unshapeable, it's unmoldable. So this is what God is referencing. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You think of flesh, you think of our flesh, it's tender and soft and sensitive. So I will, I will remove your heart of stone, your rebellious, stony, immovable heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh, something that's gentle and sensitive. I will place my spirit within you. So this is how God is going to accomplish what he said through the prophet Jeremiah. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave to your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. So God says, He's going to put his spirit within his people, those called by his name. And through putting his spirit within his people, God's going to put his own personal presence and nature within his people. And this is going to cause them, this is going to enable them and empower them to follow God's statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So this is how God causes those who love God. This is how he empowers them to do what's right. So we talk about that struggle and frustration we feel from the desires that come within us or that just naturally come. And that's because of the na natural unfortunate condition of sin, of rebellion, of corruption. And your flesh, your body literally has a mind of its own. One example the Lord gave me a few years ago now is the example of Venom and Eddie Brock. There's a clip when I seen the the trailer for the video where Eddie Brock is starting to take notice that there's something living in him and he's having this dialogue with this entity, Venom, this symbiote or symbiote. And Eddie Brock is like, if you're going to stay, you will only hurt bad people. Unseen on camera, Venom from within him pins him up against a wall and you hear this very demonic voice that says the way i see it we can do whatever we want and so sin is like venom it's like that symbiote from the inside out it pushes us and presses us and drives us and makes us do stuff 
sometimes we're we go hand in hand with what the desire is i used to unfortunately but as god has by his spirit once i had been baptized filled with his spirit experientially by praying in the spirit which the outward manifestation is the whole speaking in tongues thing i will make a video breaking that down but speaking in tongues your spirit begins to pray paul says in first corinthians 14 when i was experientially filled with god's spirit god began to change my desires and through changing my desires learning how to walk in the spirit god has helped me to overcome different aspects heal different hurts hurts from abuses and different things and and it's all been by god's spirit so once again verse 27 i will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances then you will live in the land that i gave your fathers and you will be my people and i will be your god so god's he told them when he was bringing them in the land of Israel, aka the land of Canaan, he says, I need you to keep my, he actually he commanded them, not I need you, but it was all for their benefit. He says, I essentially, the way I'm afraid that I need you to keep my commandments. Cause if not, if you start getting all crazy and, and out of line, like these nations that I'm about to kick out, then I'm gonna have to kick you out the land. I can't play favorites. I kicked them out the land for their wickedness. If you become wicked too, I got to kick you out the land. And that's what was going on here with Ezekiel. So by putting his spirit within them, he can, from the inside, help them overpower their condition, nature of sin and corruption through sin, the nature and condition of sin. And then God can bring them back into the land and help them live out a pure and upright life or a holy and righteous life as we say in biblical lingo so from ezekiel there's a few hundred years that passed by god sends different prophets and we hit what's called the intertestamental or intercovenantal period where there's this period of transition and the transition is hitting its end when we get into the gospels and one of the first people we meet when we get into the Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, one of the first people we meet is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, and God uses John the Baptist to be what was called a forerunner or God's ambassador to prepare the atmosphere, to prepare the culture, to prepare the way, as it's often said to prepare the atmosphere and the culture and the minds and the hearts of the people to be receptive for what God was about to do following John the Baptist. And so we see John the Baptist show up on the scene and the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as well. And we're going to hit some of these different gospel accounts. But in Matthew's Gospel in the third chapter, in starting of verse one, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent turn from sin forsake sin and turn away from it because the kingdom of heaven has come near for he is the one spoken of through the prophet isaiah who said a voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord prepare the way for yahweh prepare the way for jehovah in its original context and make his paths straight verse 11 this is still john the baptist i baptize you with water for repentance I baptize you with water, signifying that you are turning away 
from sin. You're forsaking sin. You're acknowledging it, forsaking it, and learning to allow God to help you live a righteous life according to his commandments, a upright life, a pure moral life that's in line with God. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, within the Gospels, as I said, there's this intertestamental period that leads into the Gospels. And you want to read things like the rabbinic writings. Um, you want to read things like the book of Maccabees and different things in order to understand the culture, both within the Gospels and leading up to the Gospels. Because the phrase, the Holy Spirit, became a rabbinic terminology used by the Jewish rabbis. It became a rabbinic phrase referencing God and referencing God's supernatural, active, experiential work among people. So this was not a phrase indicating a different person or being. It was referencing Yahweh himself, but referencing him in a way that was experiential for people. So when the Spirit of God will come upon people, you would see within rabbinic literature, it would say the Holy Spirit rested upon whoever, rested upon the prophet so-and-so, or upon this judge, or upon this king. And so it became a rabbinic phrase that was used to reference Yahweh, to reference Jehovah. And so, of course, talking about Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, the Lord said he would write his law upon the people's hearts by his spirit. And so what does John the Baptist say? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John the Baptist is saying Yahweh himself is coming. Yahweh is, he's on his way. I'm preparing his way. I'm preparing the way for him. I'm preparing your hearts and your minds to receive what Yahweh himself is about to do. And that's why Matthew refers to the writing of Isaiah when he says that John the Baptist was prophesied about through Isaiah. He's preparing the way for Yahweh, for Jehovah. Now, moving forward in the gospel of John and John's account of his experience with Jesus, he's writing specifically for documentation to encourage the church and to give the church documentation that Jesus himself was Yahweh who made himself visible in a human life and in a human identity. And so John, he this is his experience with John the Baptist, and he's giving us some complimentary information that John the Baptist shared. So in verse 29 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, it says, the next day, John, talking about John the Baptist, not John the disciple. Next, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away, who removes the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who, was, who has surpassed me because he existed before me. This is not a pre-existing Christ and his own separate personality, but this is Jesus pre-existing as Yahweh before he made himself visible in that human life and identity of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah. Verse 31, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, 
He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, and I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. So the Lord tells us, he informs us through John the disciple of what he, what the Lord told John the Baptist. I'm sending you to baptize so that the person who is going to baptize everybody in the Holy Spirit, he's going to be revealed through your baptism. It's going to be a public revealing. And so John the Baptist tells us how he would know. Once again, I didn't know him in verse 33. Or I'll go back to 32. And John testified, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. And I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the spirit is going to signify who this individual is, but then that individual is also going to be the one to be baptizing people, to be filling people, to to be immersing people with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that he is the son of God. So just for a quick recap, the Lord says that the nation of Israel continued to break his covenant and break his laws, and that because of that, he was going to enact a new covenant, and that under this new covenant, he is going to write his laws upon our hearts. And we read where he spoke that through the, pro the prophet Jeremiah. But then through the prophet Ezekiel, who is in captivity, got kicked out the land during the nation of Israel's rebellion against God. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God says he's going to write his laws upon people's hearts by his spirit. And when he does that, it's going to cause them, it's going to enable them, empower them to live by his commandment. But then when we get to the new covenant, we see that Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, that he sends John the Baptist and that. He tells John the Baptist that the person you see the spirit rest upon, he is the same individual, he's the same being and person that's going to baptize everybody else in the Holy Spirit. So God promises a new covenant and that through this new covenant, he's going to write his laws upon their hearts. Then he's going to write their laws, his laws upon their hearts by giving them his spirit. And then he's preparing the way through John the Baptist for people to receive the Spirit, and he reveals himself as Jesus Christ. Yahweh reveals himself in the person of and human person of Jesus Christ. So going back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, going down to verse 13, it says, then Jesus came. Now, if you're not familiar with it, Jesus's name, it, it is, this is the English translation, but it comes all the way down to us from the original Aramaic or Hebrew, Yeshua or Yehoshua, long form. Yeshua is the contracted form. Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh's salvation. So when you're reading the name of Jesus, you're reading a, a name, but you're reading a description of what God was accomplishing through, the, through this human identity he created for himself. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because this is how Yahweh was going to reveal the Messiah, this promised individual king, many aspects to the Messiah. But he was going to, through being baptized, Yahweh was going to reveal himself and the human identity through which he was going to baptize everybody else with his own spirit. Then Jesus came from Galilee 
to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? So John knew what was about to happen and who he had some semblance of understanding because they were cousins and their family communicated and talked, even though they had some distance between them land-wise. But you see here, John understands something that Jesus is able to do. So he says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. What it means, what Jesus is saying is anything that God says is right, and God has sent you so I could be baptized, so the spirit of Yahweh that lived in Jesus could reveal to the public that this was the Messiah they had been waiting for, this this leader and this redeemer, this person who was going to establish them back as Yahweh's covenant people in the closest sense possible. Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him to be baptized. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And so we see this progression. God makes a promise. He's going to help his people. He's going to help people live out his commandments, overcome their sin and their wickedness. Then he says, I'm accomplish it by putting my presence, my personal presence in you, my spirit in you, because God is a spirit. Jesus says in the gospel of John chapter four, verse 24. God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit, must worship worship him in the supernatural dimension, in spirit and in truth. And so God says, I'm going to write my laws upon your heart by my supernatural presence, and that will empower you, enable you to live according to my word. And that's going to keep us in close connection and alignment with each other. And then the time comes for this to actually actively start taking place, and he starts enacting this through John the Baptist. And he says, the person you see, John, that the Holy Spirit, that my spirit is going to rest upon, that's the individual who's going to baptize everybody else in the Holy Spirit. And so we see that take place at Jesus's baptism. Now, in preparing for this, this writing, this portion of scripture also came to mind through the prophet Isaiah. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verses six through nine. And it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Pursue him, try to get to know him while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as the heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so God is telling us, he says, because of your corrupted human nature, your condition of sin, we have two different perspectives on life. God is saying, I have my creative perspective, my what I did and what I intended, and then you have your corrupted human perspective. And so he's saying, pursue me while there is the availability too. Because when we die, if we die in sin, we can't pursue the Lord anymore. We're stuck and locked in that state. Our soul is locked in that condition of impurity, of sin. 
and we're just locked in that in that state. And so God is saying, pursue me while you still can. And he's saying, if you will forsake your wicked way, he says, I will have compassion on you. I will help you. And that goes to anybody through all ages, through all generations. And so there's this valuable lesson that we get through the gospel of John yet again, Jesus' disciple and apostle John. And this is where Jesus gives us some insight on how do we partake? How do we what does it mean to have received in part to receive God's spirit? What is it? How does it help us? What do we need to do? And so there's this religious leader, this Jewish religious leader, the party of the Pharisees, the, the group of the Pharisees, the denomination of the Pharisees. And it says there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus, came to him, Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now, this is, of course, a natural reaction for any of us, for any of us that are not Jews. But there is a layer here that many times many of us Christians don't even know that's here. For whatever reason, we have underlying, sometimes we have un underlying anti-Semitisms at work within our mind. We don't want to go back to Jewish sources, read Jewish history. And so there's a lot that we miss a lot of times. And that's why we've talked about the lingo of the rabbis, the rabbinic languages and phrases and phraseology. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, a person must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, what do you mean? Well, for the rest of us, of course, we would say, well, what do you mean we need to be born again? That, that's a valid question. But for Nicodemus, it had a whole different take because, as we're about to see, within Jewish literature, they have a concept of what it means to be born again or a newborn or reborn, but many of us don't even know it exists. This comes from one of their traditional writings, the Talmud and the Mishnah, and this is what's called tractate or the sectional writing called Yevamot, and it's both found in both 48b and 62a, or chapter 48b, uh, chapter 62a. And it says, a convert who just converted is like a child just born. And so for rabbis, for rabbinic Judaism, the concept of being born again, when you go back and you read the context, it means somebody, as it says, a convert, somebody who's gone from paganism to becoming a Jew, somebody who's gone from worshiping all the other gods of the world to worshiping the one who truly is God, Yahweh, Jehovah, because you're learning a whole new way of life. You're adopting a whole new identity. You're learning a whole new culture. And so that's where for Nicodemus, when Jesus says, you must be born again, Nicodemus is like, what? I'm already Jewish. I'm, I'm not a pagan. What do you mean I need to be born again? And so Jesus clarifies for us as we keep reading in the passage. Now, unfortunately, many times you're going to hear a lot of Bible teachers say, yes, you need to be born again, but they never break it down from a biblical perspective. Many times they come up from what they have traditionally been taught, but they don't go and see what Jesus says about being born again. And so this 
what Jesus has to say about what it takes to be born again, reborn of God into God's family and out of the human, the natural human family is of utmost importance. So I want to make sure you pay attention to this section and I will link a more dedicated video down below that I have on it about what it means to be born again, both of water and spirit. So in verse five, Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. So whatever within even Jewish understanding and especially older Jewish understanding, whatever is born of humanity is born of corrupted humanity. What is, whatever is born of corruption is corrupted, essentially. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit, whatever is born of God's spirit, whatever is born of God's supernatural presence is supernatural. So whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is, whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So Jesus clarifies for us what he means. He means there are two aspects. There's born of water and spirit. And like I said, I will link my breakdown of that showing from the scriptures what he taught, what he meant, and how his disciples, his handpicked disciples and apostles, how they put that into practice. And so moving forward, in Acts chapter 1, this is where the church in, in the book of Acts, the church comes into being. And in chapter 1, this is Jesus's kind of final words before he leaves. And in verse 4, he says, while he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So yet again, Jesus is reiterating this need for to receive God's spirit, God's personal presence. Verse six, they, they're still focused on something else. Jesus' disciples, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? So they're still wanting their sovereignty as a nation. But what is Jesus's response? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the father has said by his own authority, talking about the spirit that lived in him, John chapter 14, the gospel of John chapter 14, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And so that day finally comes where God pours out his Holy Spirit. And we find that in Acts chapter two. And it says, when the day of Pentecost, this was a Jewish feast day under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, given specifically to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. When the day of Pentecost or Shavuot had arrived, they were all together in one place, talking about Jesus' disciples. You got to read through chapter one and it'll make contextual sense. The setting will, it will make sense. Verse two, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying and tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Dropping down between verse 5 and 6, 
down to 11. They start naming all these nations that all these Jews came from. And we get down to verse 11. It says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. What did the Lord say through the prophet Isaiah? He says, with stammering lips and another tongue or language, I will speak to this people. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? What does this mean? So you have to you have to choose what side you're on when it comes to this. Are you going to ask that same question? It's a good question. It's a valid question. So you have to be careful because that's a valid question. But then on the other side, you have verse 13. But some sneered and said, they're full of new wine. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, or Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. So this is another prophet that God spoke through, Joel, or Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. So God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit, and I'm going to empower some things that you, you're not even thinking of. I'm, I'm going to pour out my spirit, and I'm going to empower you to live according to my commandments, but then I'm going to empower you to do some things through, this, through my supernatural presence that you're not even probably mindful of. I'm going to empower as many people to be my witnesses as possible. But that still brings up the concept of, or the thought of, how do I overcome my struggle of sin and temptation that I battle with? And so God lets us know it is by being filled with his spirit. We see when the apostles and disciples were filled with the spirit, they had this experience of praying in the spirit, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, which is evidenced by speaking in another language supernaturally as the spirit of God empowers us to. That's why I read you the scriptures. But one last thing, in writing to the Christians in Rome, the apostle Paul says this about learning to live by God's spirit. So then brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So we're not obligated to our humanity to live according to its sinful and corrupted desires for if you live according to the flesh you're going to die talking about being eternally separated from god but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live so the apostle paul tells us that by god's spirit we can stop we can put to death we can stop living and struggling in many senses as i can tell you myself we can stop struggling with a lot of things that our human, our sinful, corrupted human nature want to take part in. But if not, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit, the way the apostles were, the way Cornelius and his household was, the way the disciples of John the Baptist were in Acts chapter 19, if we're not filled experientially with God's Holy Spirit with the same sign, and we're just going by what tradition has told us because tradition has rejected what God has said, then we're going to continue to struggle with our sinful desires, our corrupted desires. We're going to continue to struggle with those things. Now, if you want to know 
how to know if you want a deeper dive on how to know what it means to be filled with the spirit born again of the spirit i'm going to point you to a video right here if you're on youtube and you can check out the next video in this series about learning how to live a spirit-filled life so until the next video god bless you in jesus name